Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. In today's episode, Amy Jolin and Stephanie Caracella join me to talk about using financials to raise money. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our first guest today is Amy Jolin. Amy is the Director of Development for Wholesome Wave. Welcome, Amy. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Amy, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, your current role at Wholesome Wave? Absolutely. I call myself a professional writer, and and then the subtitle is fundraising specialist. So, so I cut my teeth in the publishing industry and learned to be a writer. And as it happens, I grew up on a farm in Ohio. So the food world is, you know, part of my DNA. So the Wholesome Wave role that I play, you know, the mission of Wholesome Wave is to address nutrition insecurity through policy transformation. And my role in that at that company is to raise the money to do the work, right? So we've got a foundation bucket of money to raise foundation institutional foundations we have a major donor individual donor bucket of money and then we have some events corporations or corporate funding is kind of knit through that piece as well so my job is to raise the money to do the work at wholesome wave and um it's a new position to me previous to this i've been kind of in the grant writing role and then in like senior leadership in the fundraising space in a variety of clients before this one Our next guest is Stephanie Caracella, the Community Relations Manager for New York City and Long Island for Bank of America. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Hi, Amy. And Amy, I will um, say we definitely have some shared commonalities. I um, studied journalism in college and actually thought that that was going to be my future until I got out into the real world and figured it was more marketing and philanthropy. So that's where I find myself now as a Community Relations Manager for Bank of America and anywhere you are asking for money, I'm giving out money for the most part, which is, you know, is fun. One thing that my manager always says, though, is as wonderful as our jobs are, the hardest thing we do is we say no more than we say yes. So looking forward to the conversation about how we make some of our decisions. But, you know, in short, my job really is bringing the bank to our local market because Bank of America is absolutely huge. We have over 200,000 employees. We operate in markets across the country you know, and globally. And in order to bring the bank to our clients locally, we have teams like me um, scattered throughout. So what we do is we run our philanthropy in market, we run our sponsorships, we engage with our employees, we get kind of involved in everything from, you know, my employee newsletter that I'm working on today to some um, initiatives in the community that we're announcing and some marketing on the forefront. So kind of a catch-all, but mainly working with our community partners and influencers throughout New York City to keep New York strong, um, support our neighborhoods, meet the, the, the needs at the time. So you mentioned, I mean, a very re- relevant point is that Amy Jolin is effectively asking for money and you're effectively giving money. Amy Jolin, can you help us maybe understand some of the complexities that you've experienced, maybe not even just at Wholesome Wave, um, but just in your extensive career as a development professional, some of the challenges you've faced and with, you know, just raising money? Yeah, absolutely. So raising money from corporations is its own sort of skill set. And one of the things I'd like to, and, and I hope that this aligns with how Stephanie thinks about giving, but one of the things that I like to do is to, it, when I position a proposal to a corporation, what I like to do is 
think about what their initiatives are, what they're trying to change, how the work that I'm doing aligns with the work that they're trying to do in the in the world, right? Because donors, foundation donors, corporate donors, or you know any kind of philanthropist, they're trying to make a change, right? They're trying to do something in the world, and they have their own sort of framework about what that looks like and what kind of change they want to make. Nonprofits are also doing that, right? We're also making change in the world. We have a mission. We're mission-driven, right? We have this central organizing principle and something a problem we want to solve. And when I think about sort of like how I position my request to a corporate donor or any philanthropist, I'm really thinking about like what piece of this aligns with the work that they're trying to do in the world, right? And so my ask is really to package what we do and take a piece of what we do explain it so that it aligns with the work that the donor is doing or the corporation is doing and ask for their partnership, right? So the so the foundation of my asking is really like seeking partnership with a corporate philanthropic arm so that we can solve this problem together. Now, obviously in many cases, corporations are not aligned with the work of a nonprofit. And so in that case, there's no alignment, there's no partnership, and I don't spend my time that way. Yeah, can I chime in? Or yes, please. In? Yes, you chime yeah, in whenever. I see, you know, we're, I, I love hearing that's very refreshing. We never like to try to, you know, set a square into a circle. We always say we always want to align our priorities, and that's that's how it works the best with these partnerships. But I would say we're also very mission-driven. You know, we um, have a purpose, and our purpose is, broadly speaking, to help make financial lives better. And I think on the community side, that really translates into building strong partnerships with nonprofit organizations addressing issues fundamental to economic mobility. And that's really what, if you meet anyone on my team, you'll hear economic mobility over and over again, because that's really what our focus is. That is broad. So we have to make sure that we have a really, I think, strong strategy in our market so that we can evaluate all the opportunities that come through the door. But yeah, we are able to kind of pick off some X somethings that don't fit, you know, I love animals, but we're not going to be doing anything, you know, with a, an animal rescue, but we will be looking at basic needs, opportunities that will hopefully break the cycle of poverty, job development, you know, anything that's kind of impacting that economic mobility and keeping it moving. So we definitely also have a mission and I, I love to hear from folks looking for money that they do want to see those that alignment and strategy, because otherwise it's just, it's, you know, it doesn't work. And then when you do have that alignment, I think great things happen, great impact, really deep engagement, which is also great because we are also very focused on not just writing a check. That's something that at the bank we are not interested in. I don't want to read a proposal, click a button and send a check. We want to really engage. We want to connect our employees if possible. So, you know, if it's a job training program, we'll have our employees go out and do resume review or mock interviewing. Food banks were always out in community kitchens and at food banks. So connecting our employees when possible, connecting our clients, that could be through storytelling, you know, sharing information. But I think there's lots of legs to a, a partnership that, you know, we definitely look at. And it only happens when you have that authentic alignment. So Stephanie, how do you make these? I mean, everybody wants to know the answer to this question, but how, how do you make these decisions? And in your opinion, what constitutes a strong proposal? I knew you were going to ask that. And I think it's a hard one. And I would love to really say, this is the secret sauce, guys. This is what you have to do. But the truth is, I think, you know, grant making is pretty subjective in the end. And, you know, yet, as I mentioned, it's very strategic. We, we have our mission. We need to align with it. 
But in the end, you know, we operate with two RFPs. So the twice a year we have proposals come in and we rank them against each other. We rank them against um, how they align with our mission. And then in a place like New York City and Long Island, we really have to be strategic too in the, the reach, making sure that we are covering all of the territory. So we definitely look at that. So we're looking for impact, potential impact. We do look for stability. We're not going to invest in a nonprofit that can't show us that they have some financial stability already. So that is something that you know, I would say is important. We really just look for that that perfect fit. And like I mentioned earlier, we say no more than we say yes, which is horrible um, because there's so many worthy organizations, but we also have a budget that is set, you know, more money, more more giving, I suppose. But you know, there's no secret sauce, really. It's so subjective and it really is just like, what's coming in, the most pressing needs of the moment. So Amy, have you noticed any trends in your experience that separate successful proposals you've written from unsuccessful ones? Yeah. So, uh, and it's something that I wanted to like jump in and talk about as I was listening to Stephanie, you know, I think that a seat, one of the, one of my secret sauce of this element of success is really relationship building, right? So we talked about partnership and a partnership is like the result of a relationship, right? Now, how do you make a relationship with a bank, right? It's very difficult to do. On the other hand, there are pieces that go into it, right? First of all, there are staff members who work in those corporate departments. They pick up their phone, they answer their emails, right? Those are, those are access to people who are, you know, earnestly working to make change. Building a relationship involves, you know, taking a little risk. Here, here's who I am. Here's who I want to, what I want to talk about. Can we set up a phone call? The beginning of a phone call is not the ask, right? That's not the, can you give us money? It's, here's what we do. Can we talk about what we're, what we're interested in? What are your priorities and where are your, you know, what's your process? And those are really key factors. Sometimes I get off a call and I realize like, mm, cross this person off the list. This is no, there's no, there's no like direction where there's going to be a fit. In other cases, we'll listen to that. We'll come back in six months, have another call. A year and a half later, we'll have another call. And finally, they'll be like, you know, we're doing this thing. I talked to so-and-so last year. I bet you they'd be interested in this. And then when that sort of spark happens and that relationship is, you know, lights fire, that's when Stephanie like knows who I am. We've talked on the phone a few times. We she knows what kind of work we do. There's a familiarity there, and she's calling me to say, "What are you seeing in the world, right, in the industry? Whether she's funding me or not, I would be in her wheelhouse, in her network, and she's in mine, right? So I can call her up and say, you know, there's this opportunity that we have to capture a bunch of money. Do you think that Bank of America would be even interested in like matching or like coming along and partnering with us on this big, you know, movement that's happening? And I have relationships with foundations that do that and with corporate donors who do that. And I think that that's the difference between a winning proposal and not a winning proposal, because I mean, let's face it, lots of organizations are strong. They have wonderful missions. They're super. Their proposals are great. Their financials are in shape, right? They're they're mission aligned. But until though, like for me, that pivotal sort of like go no-go piece is really, do I have a relationship with this person? Have I ever been funded by them before? Do we know that we're in alignment and are we responsive to what their needs are? And many times you're not going to know that until you've had a conversation. And what I find most staff people who are on the, you know, who are giving money, they recognize that you've put a lot of effort into this, that you're a legit like 
professional and they, they honor the work that you've done to do that. And so they'll get on the phone afterwards and they'll like tell you, you know, it wasn't that you did anything wrong, but we had, you know, we just have limited funds or whatever those are. But that's part of, you know, what this relationship looks like. You know, it's the ask, it's the denial, it's the decline, and it's the respect that you have between one another. And I, what I have found overwhelmingly is that donors are incredibly respectful of the work of development professionals who are asking for money. They just really understand that process and the legitimacy of that work. So there's a lot of like shared dignity, I think, in that process. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would um, even say when I think um, I was reflecting before our call about some of my most successful funding opportunities and partnerships, and it all comes down to relationships. So even, you know, yeah, it starts in that, it starts there and it continues there and um, ultimately hopefully doesn't end there, but that's really what it, what it's all about learning about each other and when you can help each other. So changing the conversation a bit now more into the financial ramifications and aspects of all of this, Stephanie, can you help us understand the financial statements that you will review when making funding decisions? We do ask for audited um, statements. Audited financials are very important. We will not accept unaudited unless, of course, there's like a funky deadline. We run into this. We have this uh, neighborhood neighborhood builder program where we, um, it's an invitation only program, happens across the country. Um, I think every market gets like 20 invites and then the nonprofits have to you know, submit an application by like a date in June, but sometimes their you know, fiscal year is different. So sometimes like something like that will happen where there's a deadline, but the, they're in between their audited statements or something like that. So they don't want necessarily old ones and we'll take the new ones, but with lots of notes. But for the most part, we want audited statements. And, you know, when we look at them, we're really looking for the the notes are the most important thing. Like if there's yep. something that does look a little funny, we do want to see like why. Uh, we don't want to ask why. We like seeing the notes on the reports. You know, I think we just, you know, check that they're obviously a 501c. Um, we look at the 990s. We do, you know, we're a big um, organization with a, a foundation that supports us. So um, things do go through a certain degree of due diligence uh, beyond me. So I think there might be some other review, but locally, that's really what we're looking for. Like I mentioned earlier, it is important to us that an organization has some financial stability. So we have to look for that. You know, we're not venture capitalists. We're not like making kind of those investments like that. So, you know, it's really... That's actually really helpful. If I can just ask a quick follow up before I rope in, Amy, I actually, we were asking this internally. So the audit threshold in New Jersey uh, was just increased from $500,000 to a million dollars. And in New York now, I believe it's a million, it's a million dollars and it's been there for a bit. But if a nonprofit is not required to have a financial audit, you would still strongly recommend, you would, you will only fund nonprofits with audited statements, even if it's not a requirement. I believe so. I'm not going to say for sure across the company, but locally, we always look for that. We need to see if there's unexplained loss with it. What, what give us the explanation? You know, it yeah. is something that's looked at. So, from my perspective, yes, but I don't know if I could speak for the entire firm. That's fair. No, and we've actually been advising our clients that are in that half a million dollar to million dollar space to continue with their audits because our position is, you know, there probably will be funder ramifications somewhere along the line. If a funder is mm-hmm. used to seeing an audit from you for years and now all of a sudden they're not, is there going to be a problem here? Amy, your thoughts on all of this? Uh, well, a nonprofit that's at f- under $500,000, they're, they're nip and tuck and audits are expensive. So yeah. 
getting funding, finding funding to do an audit is, is a huge challenge when you're under half a million dollars. Between a half and a million dollars, again, very challenging to do an audit. And um, usually you don't have, well, sometimes uh, uh, you don't have a, a full-time finance person on staff yet, right? So it's just a, it's just a burden on the organization. On the other hand, telling your financial story is a huge part. If you're expecting to get foundation dollars and corporate dollars, you need to tell your fund your your financial story, and that comes in an audit. Other attachments I've seen that have been in a replace of an in replacement for an audit would be a 990, and then other like financial attachments that kind of help to tell the story would be past contributions. So who have you been funded for in the past one year, two years, or you know beyond that? Another piece that might be relevant to some of your listeners are board giving percentages. So mm-hmm. percentage of your board members who are contributing to the organization. And you obviously you want to get that as close to 100% as possible. Those are just pieces that I've had to develop, you know, as I've been writing grants. That's actually really helpful. A quick follow-up in terms of the just going back to the 990, I will frequently have development directors ask to see the 990 before it is approved by the board. And, and the whole concept there is, is that the 990 is a, so we look at it as a, as a tax filing. And I've heard that from, you know, someone in your position, Amy, that no, 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 this is, this is a fundraising tool. So we want to make sure that the way we're describing our mission, the way that we're portraying the organization in non-financial terms is just as important. And I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I when I assess a nonprofit myself as, you know, a contractor or, you know, in the development world, I look at the 990 first. I don't, I skip the audit. Yep. The story that's told in the 990 is really, you know, really interesting. You know what the um, senior officers are earning. You know, if your board members are taking any money, you know what kind of contributions they've taken or given, who they're giving to. Are they re- like, especially with institutional donors, are they giving any money or is is there, you know, do they have like a foundation in name only, but a, just a tiny fraction of their income or their, you know, donatable dollars is, is being given outside of the organization or is it mostly being given to a staff person? So the narrative that you can get from a, from a 990 is just incredibly rich and tells the story of, you know, what their financial situation is. The other thing a 990 does that is, um, an audit does this too, but a 990 um, will do is it'll compare year to year. So yeah. if you look at, you know, two years of nonprofits, you get a three-year spread. So you're looking and you're like, well, wait a minute, you used to be making a ton of money and now you kind of dropped off and now like you're even lower, like what's going on over there? Or the other way, like you used to be small and now you're growing, you've got this steady growth. How cool is that? And then you can kind of look a little deeper, like, well, oh, here's the million dollar donation from, you know, so-and-so foundation, Bank of America, because there's a wonderful and the partnership is so strong. That's why they've been able to thrive in this like, you know, special niche opportunity. Stephanie, can you talk a little bit maybe about specifically some financial metrics that you find to be very helpful when you're reviewing an audit? I know the program ratio is a big one for a lot of funders that we work with. I don't know if you have any thoughts. We do do a lot of general operating support, um, okay. and I feel like we've we've kind of gone to that. We were there, and then we moved to the um, economic mobility RFP cycles, and then we yeah we did look at the programs. And yes, you know, right now we're I'm not actually not really um, kind of considering that because of that gen op stance. But okay. I imagine we'll we'll shift out of it at some point too. 
Okay. And um, yeah, yeah, we, we do. We also do a, a community like impact, like a, more of a post now. When we um, find people, we send out a survey at the end of the year, um, and it's an impact report that we are asking all of our nonprofits yeah. to tell us, "Hey, you got the funding. What what did you do with it?" And we ask everything. We ask about yes, the program that people touch. We ask them to follow. Some do. We have some partners for years that you know we were a um, founding partner of a program. And now here we are, I think 10 years later, I kind of want to know what happened, you know, to those, those yeah. kids that went through it. It was a, it's a high school program. Where are they now? And, you know, do they think that this program helped? So financially, sometimes it's more anecdotally that I'm looking yeah. for for my impact reports. And we, and we also ask the marketing and, and branding questions, like where the bank got coverage or if they did any social on it. Um, you know, how do they share the partnership? So we'll, we'll look at that too. But as far as that metric, um, on the application questions, I'm not really looking not at that. So much. Right okay. Let me see that though. Something that we did add to our application a few years ago, and it's aligned to our um, 1.25 billion uh, five-year commitment to advance racial quality and economic mobility, is a you know question about DNI. Really, we are asking about staff. Um, if there, you know, what the kind of breakdown is, and then we are looking at those answers. We're looking at the board makeup that does um, is considered and you know it, it's part of walking our, our talk right we, we put up this big commitment we're looking at our own hiring and we're making adjustments and we also want to make sure especially in New York City that um, the organizations that we're partnering with are reflecting the communities that they're serving so yep. that's been a, a metric that's been added to our, um, our applications that I would say was newer in the past five years that's really helpful and makes a lot of sense. I am actually just curious though. I know I know for us on the on the finance and accounting end of things, for all of the organizations we work with, and, and Amy, I know we do this, and I'm pretty sure we're doing this monthly for Wholesome Wave. The the big metric is what percentage of your expenses are spent on programmatic activities versus administrative and fundraising. Um, and that's something that we have to actively track on a monthly basis and we have to allocate salaries accordingly. And there are benchmarks. So I frequently will hear that a foundation or a corporation will not even consider funding a nonprofit whose program ratio is under 75%. Um, I think that's actually been changing a bit, especially with COVID. I think that there's been more flexibility. But Amy, I'm just curious as to your thoughts here in terms of just general metrics, your thoughts yeah. on the program ratio and all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, you hit on a really triggering question for nonprofits, right? Yep. If you looked at any for-profit entity and you broke down how much are they spending on their marketing and on their, you know, what what would consider overhead, nobody's a, nobody's saying, you know, you shouldn't be marketing your work, you shouldn't be solving it, you know, like spreading your work. Nobody's evaluating it that way. But when a nonprofit organization goes into the world and tries to solve a major problem, now we have this like microscope and we say, wait a minute, you can't market, you can't fundraise, you can't ha even have highly paid, you know, executive director, you have to spend all your money on this program work. So it's just a, it's a double standard that nonprofits yep. have to sort of live with. Okay, let's put that aside for a second. The place that that is coming from, in my experience, the rate, the reason that we have this like hyper attention to that ratio is because metrics that have been set up for good reason, like GuideStar, 
where you get a ranking according to the the percentages spent on somewhat arbitrary categories, right? Yeah. So the amount of money you spend on development or what would be called overhead or marketing or promotions, whatever, those are in certain categories and they skew your percentage or your ranking on GuideStar. Now, GuideStar is used legitimately so by donors who want to decide who to give their money to, and they want to give it to the best, most efficient nonprofit that they can possibly give it to so that their money is going directly to help whatever issue they're working toward. It was started in a very earnest way, but what it means is that nonprofits who have a different sort of a mission where they're overhead heavy, for example, Wholesome Wave does a lot of advocacy work, right? We're working on on changing systems, right? Now, are we putting like food on the tables of people? Yes, of course we are. But that's not in the same way that a food bank is doing that. Food bank has volunteers or like, you know, low paid staff who like get free food and they, you know, serve people food right this second. For Wholesome Wave, we're looking at much more systematic change. And so our overhead is going to have a different sort of complexion or a different look than a different kind of like direct service. So it is your question about like, how do I think of like those metrics? I think my job is to explain to a donor why that's not relevant in this case. Like, do you want (laughs) to solve the problem we're working on? Well, then this is what it costs. Like, this is the, this is the ratio that we've got. If you don't want to solve our problem, if this is not like aligned with the work that you want to do, then I can't do anything about that, right? This is our mission. And here's how we break this down. Obviously in our audit, you know, we don't have an overly, you know, like an exorbitantly paid executive director and we're very lean in the development staff. Like we're very responsible with the money that we do have, but my job isn't to manipulate our dollars or cut out essential work. It's really to convince a donor that we are efficient and the best person to do the work that we're doing. And I would say like most philanthropists or most corporate partnerships that we have get it. Like yes. the donors that we're that we have relationships with are completely on board. They totally understand that and they for the most part are not looking at those ratings. That that makes a lot of sense. And I know for like so I I just know a lot of organizations that we work with have are small um, and they have annual operating budgets under a million dollars and they are just by nature of their size they're going their overhead is just naturally going to be a larger percentage of their total expenses because they're just not big. They haven't achieved a level of scale yet. So we've found at least that just having the narrative and explaining that, yes, our administration is this high and it's this percentage is going to accounting because we think that having strong financial systems in place is valuable. And this percentage is going to IT to make sure that we have appropriate cybersecurity protocols. And just explaining it explaining the detail is in detail is extraordinarily valuable. So one last question in order to tie this up and thanks to you both so much. How do you prepare for the financial component of asking for money? Amy, let's start with you. Start by building your arsenal. Get a full file full of the financial pieces that you're going to need, your audit, your 990, your list of contributions, all of the pieces that tell your financial story and those are going to be at the ready when you're against a deadline for proposing to three or four foundations all in the same month, you want to have those ready to go, ready to attach and um, have them put your best foot forward from a financial standpoint. Thanks, Amy. Stephanie? So I would say as far as, you know, make sure your financials are in order. Make sure your notes are clean. Notes are really important. Sometimes people don't think that, but it's easy to, when you're reading hundreds of applications, and we do get hundreds of applications, to kind of put one aside if you have a question that can't be easily answered. So 
Uh, we read notes. We read every application that comes in. So the tighter an application is, the, the more likely it will get funded. And that goes for everything even beyond the financials. Like it should be a very thorough um, application. You have room to write, use it. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Stephanie, so much for participating. This has been great. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, nice to see you guys. Nice to be here. See you guys. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps, and please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.